0: The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted many of our routines, including the way we engage with our healthcare providers. According to a national survey commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association, Canadians who connected with their doctor virtually during the pandemic reported a 91% satisfaction rate, which was 17% higher than in-person emergency room visits. This raises more questions than answers, as access to broadband high-speed internet connection and mobile devices remain a barrier for many populations. In this episode, we'll be speaking with a special guest about how telemedicine and other virtual care technologies can be leveraged to provide healthcare access to -to hard-to-reach populations in a way that does not exacerbate existing health inequities.
1: This is the Public Health Insight Podcast.
0: Hello everyone. My name is Gordon and welcome to the Public Health Insight Community Conversation podcast series. And I'm joined with my fellow co-host, LaShawn.
2: Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with.
0: Our guest is a primary care physician based in London, Ontario. He is the chief medical officer for iTelemed Canada Telemedicine Group and is an adjunct community faculty member for the Department of Family Medicine at Western University. He is also a working group lead for the IEEE Standards Association Telehealth IC Virtual Care Lexicon as part of a team to recommend standards to increase the accessibility of digital health for remote and rural low resource regions. He is early into exploring the work within WHO private sector collaboration and innovation for digital health he has a deep network within stakeholders in the private and public sector and enjoys sharing his knowledge facilitating connections and encouraging others willing to tackle issues of health inequity in canada and the rest of the world please join me in welcoming to the public health insight podcast dr keith thompson
2: welcome dr thompson thanks so much gordon Lashawn. uh really excited to be here with you today and uh you know as i said before we started uh this has been a journey for me right uh, i'm a late comer to uh, virtual care and i jokingly say uh, further along in life i think than maybe some of the guests and yourself so i don't have a lot of time left in life so uh, you know if i'm going to uh, learn as much as i can let's learn fast and uh Certainly excited to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about virtual care and its implications, right, to general population use, but also marginalized populations. And uh, kudos to you guys and uh, Public Health Insight, some amazing work. Uh, I had banged into Gordon uh, through a uh, pitch event for uh, social Mm -hmm. innovation around opiates and uh, learned of the work you're doing through that and uh, really quite awesome and uh, really uh, inspired by the network that you're creating. And so thanks for this opportunity.
0: So, Dr. Thompson, tell us more about what you do and the organization that you represent.
2: Yeah, so I'm a family care uh, physician, family practice uh, here in Mm. London, Ontario, Uh, solo practice right now, but uh, fee for service. And uh, we can talk about physician reimbursement maybe on Mm. another podcast. But uh, uh, really, my journey has been uh, into virtual care and its applications into primary care and really staying centered within that which is publicly funded. Uh, And uh, through that journey, discovering that, uh, you know, there's some issues obviously in terms of equity and we've seen uh, uh, a greater uh, disparity, certainly during COVID. Um, Along that journey, you know, you learn of other people and organizations uh, working in this area. So I'm adjunct faculty at Western uh, doing some co-investigator work under Dr. Bridget Ryan and several of the family docs within the faculty department of family, Medicine uh, researching what is best practice and uh, what will the guidelines be for virtual care because Pre COVID, we didn't really know. We were slammed with this great pandemic and we were in survival mode. And certainly, most of the encounters we do are by telephone uh, because we have the relationship, and we know the patients, and that's probably easiest for workflow uh, and probably easiest for patients in some ways. Um, but my other affiliations, the IEEE SA Telehealth Industry Connections is what the IC stands mm. for. and that organization formed recently as you know IEEE SA creates those standards around electronics and information communication technologies uh, you know what's the basic standards though so that your toaster doesn't shock you when you turn it on uh, but they realized it in terms of telehealth uh, in terms of virtual care uh, they really hadn't turned their lens on to that area so this whole organization uh, which is open to any members by the way so I'd encourage anyone listening as is- thought about wanting to offer their expertise Uh, as a volunteer, uh, sweat equity, but really important work that they decided to focus on and how do we create a infrastructure and ecosystem that's going to allow access regardless of regions and how do we improve connectivity and what are the security and privacy issues that we need to keep in mind because we may be able to get easy connectivity into a community, but is it going to be equitable in terms of privacy and in terms of security? So that has to be considered. So that's where IEEE is in. The World Health Organization again is a kind of a new gig for me. It was merely a roundtable discussion that I was Mm. invited to and it was able to participate still ongoing uh, but a fabulous network uh, met some innovators doing some work in Africa uh, and remote regions in, in Africa and Kenya uh, and we can talk about that as well but certainly uh, really great examples right of how to do a lot with little um, right. so that's kind of the background of my organizational participation locally here at home bringing it to that Ontario perspective as you know we're moving towards Ontario health teams and it is getting us to think as primary. Primary care beyond the person in my office in front of me, but as a collaborative, our whole population. So not just the one diabetic that I'm meeting on a, a virtual visit or telephone or office face-to-face visit, but all... 200 patients in my practice who are diabetic and likewise as a region those thousands of patients who are diabetic uh, and there comes a challenge I think in equity and access because uh, within London uh, the estimates I'm hearing will say western Ontario health region we have up to 70,000 patients without primary care access uh, and if you scratch down a little bit into that and what are those limitations of access uh, and what is creating marginalization that's preventing access it may be geographic it may be uh, those social determinants Uh, Mm -hmm. and that's my last comment and I really appreciate being here is as I started to scratch deeper into this realizing that digital divide really equates with the social determinants of health so many of the things that are creating poor health really uh, are also similar to what is preventing access to our digital health ecosystem or virtual care as we call it.
3: Yeah, no, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I was wondering if you could share a bit more about iTelemed Canada from a more of an operational perspective and your role as the Chief Medical Officer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So iTelemed was formed as a non-for-profit and financial conflict of interest declared i'm a chief medical officer would uh declare revenues if i had any uh, it has been sweat equity to this point uh, really uh, deeming to stay within the publicly funded guidelines which pre-covid otn was pretty much the only way to access virtual care for patients that was funded so you had to be a physician registered with otn uh, ontario telemedicine networks one of the largest uh virtual care telemedicine networks in the mm. world actually uh So some phenomenal work that that they have done, but It's clunky, it's a hard workflow, it doesn't easily adapt. And so that really, outside of OTN, were these private systems, right? You had Maple, Dialog, Akira, all these companies springing up, providing virtual care, telemedicine care, video chat encounters that wasn't funded. So it was a direct to consumer or through employer-based program, whereas OTN was publicly funded. So iTeleMed has really been looking to stay publicly funded and leverage in the system uh, what is open to all of our patients in Ontario right not just those that have ability to pay. Uh, COVID has changed this a little bit so we're seeing now that under the uh, Ontario Health uh, guidelines we have oh I think last count five or six vendors, uh, Maple, uh, 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 Doxy.me, several of them that have applied for verification which What that means is when we reach a point that the Ministry of Health may pull the plug on these temporary fee codes uh, to encounter our patients by video or telephone, these other vendors will likely be able to say we're approved, uh, we meet the requirements, and so any physicians who use our platform will be allowed to bill for that service. Uh, whether that will address the issues of equity of access, you know, would be a whole other discussion. But uh, that's really how we differ, perhaps somewhat, in I-Tele-Med, uh versus you know the other systems that are out there. So um, we're doing some work with Participation House uh, here in London. Uh, and those are very uh, high needs individuals, wheelchair-bound, congregate living. To bring them to the office is you know, uh, an endeavor unto itself. Two to three hundred dollars actually in costs for attendant care, getting them to the office. Or a physician would have to take time at the end of his day, uh, which is usually after hours, uh, and the premiums and fee codes to do that can be in excess of 120, 140 dollars. We can do that visit virtually in many cases for 45 or less dollars. Mm. Uh, And we're still on an uphill battle, uh, just so you know, to get the allowance for the virtual house uh, call fee code. Uh, We're allowed every other fee code virtually, but we've really been fighting to try and say, guys, you know, this is really an issue of access for highly complex patients. Can you allow those encounters to happen which in our case, we're using a stethoscope and the equipment to examine. So it's not just a video encounter. We're going deeper into that encounter with the patient uh, as close as you could get to a bedside exam. Uh, and that's still, as I said, still a challenge to find funding for that type of program.
0: Right, right. And that's, that segues us perfectly um, into our, the next thing we wanted to talk about. So you've been practicing as a primary care physician for a number of years now. And we know that telemedicine has emerged as um, a tool to help providers provide healthcare services to their patients. Uh, and it's superimposed onto COVID, of course, because people are less able to move around with the lockdowns and the restrictions and closures. So uh, before we get into it, we're hoping for you to share with us, clear up some terms for us. I'm not sure if they're interchangeable. We've come across terms like digital health, telehealth telemedicine, virtual care. So we're just wondering if you could situate us a little bit.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think we're fortunate in Canada because there's a great working group under Digital Health Canada, actually, that created a a lexicon Mm -hmm. uh, that was really meant to try and define some of these terms. And why is that important? First off, let me say that as we develop standards around this, and that's the working group within IEEE, as we're looking to license and create standards, uh, creating standards around terms is a challenge. And uh, honestly, no one's been able to do this. There's been a lot of talk and wrestling with, it uh, but we often kind of get mired down in the clinical applications whereas those that are in the technical side of it are looking at this as an industrial or information communication tech standards uh, so merging those two worlds has been a challenge certainly in Canada what's been done is we talk about virtual care and that I think of it as the umbrella or all-encompassing term for all things digital health uh, that the platforms that are used when you go down into the clinical encounters, uh, we can speak of concepts or domains. Was a terminology that was used here in Canada, and the concepts or domains would be the ways in which you engage with the patient. The general terms, so telehealth, telemedicine, e-health, consumer health, telemonitoring, telepathology, telepsychiatry. Just by those terms alone, you can kind of feel, you get an implication. What's going? Oh, teleradiology, absolutely looking at X-ray, ultrasound, telehealth, telemedicine. Uh, So, telemedicine traditionally implies a term where a physician or allied health professional is engaging with a patient and treating them remotely. So again, virtual care, just to clarify, is other than face-to-face and telehealth might be all other aspects of that. It may be uh, an email, a text, it may be an exchange of information between provider to provider, provider to patient, uh, between sources of information on the patient, uh, you know, would be all within that domain. We get into capabilities and then that is the more specific specifics rather of the tools that you would use. So uh, the execution of it can be synchronous like we're talking right now live okay or it could be asynchronous I could record my symptoms and findings I'm a nurse provider getting the parameters on a patient and upload it and the physician comes in later and encounters or the patient uploads their blood pressure or their blood sugar and throws it into my email or my uh, uh, my inbox as a digital in in and I look at that later but the capabilities would be again telephone messaging texting Peripherals uh, was one that I was able to kind of play. Hey, guys, you got to include a uh, doing an exam, right? The equipment to mm-hmm. look and ex- and provide that uh, gets included. Patient education or e consults, right? So I'm creating a parameter and sending it to a specialist. So virtual health concepts or domains of platforms interacting on and the capabilities. That's mm-hmm. the way Digital Health Canada defined it, and that's a pretty good generic and and I think it's got potential and we're bringing that forward to IEEE and they were inspired by this. What we need a little bit more definition around is the population health aspects of that, right? And that really hasn't been addressed because there's a lot of stuff we're today talking public health. You guys are the heroes during the pandemic, right? And so population, big data, uh, regional data, right? And what does that look like? And that's still uh, within a domain, if you think of it, as virtual care, right. uh, but the capabilities may be different. Maybe it's gonna be an AI analysis of data and say, look, our STI rates in this region are very high, we need to address that. Or our TB rates, right? So it may be regional. So that's how I think we think the definition, virtual, break it down, the platform we interact, and that may be digital, e-health, eHealth, mHealth. I, I would tend to just group those all into one. Mm. And then the actual means of engaging with those patients are more kind of the the clinical specifics.
3: Mm. Right, right. Cool. Yeah. Like speaking of the like specific populations or just populations in general, there was a survey done in 27 countries that really found that one in 10 respondents had tried telemedicine before and four in 10 indicated that they would try it if it was available. So, under normal circumstances, before the pandemic, what was the uptake of virtual healthcare in Canada? And in your experience, have more patients been using it as an option during the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Yeah. So, uh, again, pre-COVID, I think the uptake that there was trajectory we were gaining, but it was still probably very small. And and I would don't have the exact stats in front of me, but I'm guessing it was probably less than. Five percent thereabouts uh, and COVID was just a great accelerator. It was literally if you look it's like the switch went on right and boom it was zero face-to-face or very near zero and everything was virtual. Virtual being telephone, email or video chat. Video is a small percentage even still uh, if you look at the work being done in primary care we have the advantage of knowing our patients longitudinally and so that's why a platform like telephone or text messaging even for that matter, works well because we have the history on the patient. We've got years of uh, you know, encounters and information on that person. If it was a new encounter, I would hazard to say it's maybe not going to work as well and there's some risks associated with that, that episodic encounter using virtual, right? So I think if you look at the CMA did a study and where we're going to go during or post-COVID, it's about a 60-40 split, meaning if you had a new problem, and you had to encounter your physician, how would you prefer to do it? And it's roughly 60% are saying face-to-face, and 40% would be okay with a a virtual encounter. So that's interesting, right? There's still that therapeutic need uh, or desire for that face-to-face. There may be just something there that's satisfying or gratifying to the patient uh, that that maybe we need to understand uh, what we can and cannot do in that regards for virtual
3: Specifically for your practice, for example, did you use a lot of telemedicine pre-COVID? And now that you shifted more, I'm assuming, to more telemedicine, what are some of those nuances that you figured out or had to work through um, with this kind of influx of people using this?
2: So uh, again, probably a, a disparity between those of us fee for service and those of us that are in capitated models. So just to define that, that means in Ontario, I'm paid per visit, I'm paid per patient. There's good and there's bad about that, and we can leave that for another day. Capitated model, here's your population, X dollars per head, whether you see them once or 20 times, doesn't matter. So workflow is extremely important in those of us in the fee for service. And I was definitely starting to explore using OTN. In fact, it was November of 2019 that OTN said, okay for those physicians registered you can send a link to the patient they open it up and you can video chat and you can bill OHIP for that process so that was a first because prior to that we had to engage patients only if they were at I recognized OTN endpoint which was typically a hospital or clinic there was some private providers out there doing it but uh, pretty much that's the only way so it was working the patients loved it it was convenient but it was clunky because you had to send the link the patients often didn't understand they would call my front desk who became my tier one tech support how do I load it in again I can't get it right Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, when COVID hit certainly telephone became the lifesaver when they released those fee codes Uh, and I have to say the patients, most of my feedback, and this is anecdotal, and I'm firm data on this, but I think the surveys would support that patients like telephone. Uh, I mean, as soon as they connect, bang, we're, we're there, right? There's no loss of time to figure out the video or is the sound working? Is the connectivity good, et cetera, et cetera. For telephone, most people work. When we get into the marginalized populations, that's interesting as well, uh, because there are some folks that, video and Wi-Fi is not an option. I mean, they only have telephone. Right. Uh, so, you know, virtual care adopts very well to that. So I think still we're seeing about 80% from what I understand, you know, would be uh, telephone uh, and maybe the other 20, mm. a mix of email uh, and uh, video chat. Interesting. Or text messaging and, and video chat. Yeah.
0: Interesting. That makes me curious about, you know, you talked about the logistics of telemedicine. Uh, fee for service versus capitation. And I wanted to hear from you then. Telemedicine is meant to expand the geographical boundaries, if you will, through which medicine or healthcare can be delivered. So are there any barriers in terms of where a physician is registered in one province and what are what are the limitations to serving people in other jurisdictions or other provinces no
2: definitely there are right so as an Ontario licensed physician I'm limited to engaging uh, my patients within the province of Ontario now if they are residents of Ontario and they're outside of the province and they're my patient I can still engage with them virtually but to go outside of that is is a concern and uh, you know one company that's done very well in this regard certainly Maple uh, was able to grow and scale their physician pool. So if you think of it, that they were able to get physicians uh, registered across many provinces. So uh, to cover the late or evening hours in Ontario means recruiting physicians able to uh, visit from say BC or vice versa into the Eastern provinces. Uh, so, you know, that was really, uh, I think, a sweet deal, right, in getting uh, that cross or provincial coverage. But for me, as an N of one, it's just not practical to really go and apply to multiple provinces because I'm just not going to get those, uh, you know, many of those encounters.
0: We know that there's a lot of push for physicians to service these underserved communities in rural regions. So, given the fact that I, as a physician, have this option, rather than moving there in person, is there a danger then that eventually there'd be less physicians and healthcare providers in those regions available for in-person interactions?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and I think in COVID, we've seen in the northern communities, physicians adopt virtual care the same as within the southern regions because of that risk of face to face contact. Mm. Um, Prior to COVID, the question is, or has been, and certainly OTN has done some work in this, is how do you bring those uh, encounters, how do you bring those services into the northern, in Ontario, for example, northern regions under or uh, indigenous communities, how do you bring those services in other than face-to-face and can virtual be a supplement to that care when the physician is not there? So it's complex because you know, as I hinted at earlier, that longitudinal relationship is most important. And depending on which, uh, you know, population we're dealing with if it's indigenous for example uh, it's extremely important to have and build trust Uh, and one of the challenges has been physicians tend to serve in northern communities because it's mandated by you know their undergraduate training or maybe they've done uh, international medical graduates they've come in and done extra training here or had uh, stipends i think there was a program to promote physicians setting up in northern ontario regions and as soon as that two, three, five-year requirement is met, bang, they're gone, right? Uh, And so it really does leave those communities in a constant sort of turnover rate. If the telemedicine services allow for greater support to that primary care, which is really what OTN, I think, was built upon, bringing the specialists into those communities and help prop up primary care when there was uncertainty around diagnoses or treatment, uh, then it can be a value-add to retain physicians that don't feel like they're working totally alone. They have that expertise to draw upon. And, and I think really uh, that's where this type of technology may be uh, a, win, a win-win. How it's or, or will it you know, uh, be enough of a value-add to attract physicians to serve in those regions I think still needs to be discovered. You would say the potential is there. Uh, can I be a physician in southern Ontario uh, and have my patients, uh, and I'm the MRP, which means most responsible physician, can I be the MRP for somebody that I may only see face-to-face once a year when I fly to that community to come in and and establish, right? And, And I think there are some regions where they say if you provide that care remotely, it's required that you you know, X number of times per year, per month, uh, provide face-to-face as well. Uh, and I think that's wise because really it's, it can't all be done by uh, by virtual care, or telemedicine, or remote care. You've got to have some face-to-face encounter.
3: Yeah, no, totally agree with that point about you have to have that face-to-face encounter. And it seems that uh, based on the results that you presented earlier, 60% do prefer having that um, face-to-face contact as well. I found some other survey results from Abacus data poll and it was commissioned by the Canadian Medical Association like you alluded to earlier. It showed the 91% satisfaction rate when uh, working with or interacting with virtual care. Other kind of interesting tidbits were 46% preferred virtual as their first uh, point of contact and 45% of people saw this to improve their access to specialists. And with that, um, like you already mentioned, 41% also think that this can inc- improve the timeliness of healthcare services. But just in general, what are some of the benefits of telemedicine? Like we hear about things like teletriage to um, assess and decrease the volume of in-person visits. We, we talk about the potential for uh, mental health services and stigma that may be a barrier in person. Is there concrete evidence that this does improve patient care? And you kind of alluded to costs earlier. Does this actually limit or control costs?
2: And that's a great question. And I think, honestly, those studies are ongoing. I know of one, at least here at Western, that's looking at uh, utilization. Uh, And as we have the virtual emergency room set up across the province, that's a recent uh, funding uh, using uh, virtual encounters for those patients that maybe are lower acuity and don't need to come to the emergency room as a face-to-face. So I think that that is still being clarified. The benefit is, you would hope, the benefit for patients ease of access, certainly, right? Not having to take time off work, drive to the office, get a script, go to the pharmacy, you know, all of those parts of the encounter can be virtualized or, you know, just electronic transfers. Uh, the downside is there's going to be some visits that require a face-to-face, and some of that may be patient determined. I think in one other uh, interview, I referred to work by Ian McWinney, what drives patients uh, coming to the physician it's that limit of tolerance. They just can't stand the pain anymore or the itch or whatever. Uh, the limit of anxiety, they're just so worried. Oh my gosh, I think it's cancer, I'm really concerned. Uh, the ticket in, uh, they wanna come for a new script, but they have a doorknob comment, oh, can I talk to you, Doc, about my alcohol use or whatever. Uh, and administrative duties, they need a note, they need a you know, clarification on something so thinking of that as the primary driver uh, which of those parts of the encounter can be met virtually and i think for mental health for sure we can probably achieve uh, satisfaction with that and i think that there may be studies that would support that i can't quote them off the top of my head without doing a little bit of digging on it Uh, utilization is a huge concern and i think that that is still being uh, looked at and the reasons are Pre-COVID, I'll give you an example, a patient goes to a virtual health center and they're encountered. The physician assistant registers them, does a bit of an exam, looks in their ears, takes a history, dials up the physician. The physician comes on for literally a one or two minute encounter, says, oh, it looks like you have, according to the nurse, a middle ear infection. I'm going to give you a prescription and off they go. So, i've experienced firsthand some patients come away not feeling satisfied obviously whether it's the anxiety or limit of tolerance just wasn't met so the next day you know they're in my office seeing me because i don't know doc like it was a video encounter and not sure they didn't listen to my lungs right so there's a double dip right that that two times, the first filling virtual and we ended up with another face-to-face. Uh, and I, I know all the early studies that were done, in Wellington, Waterloo, uh, that enhanced access to primary care. One of the concerns in the rural regions was the primary care docs working in eMERGE, working in the hospital, dial up, have the encounter with a patient, it's a video or it's a telephone. Oh, I'm here at the eMERGE, come on down, right? So it kind of uptick to a face-to-face and is it needed? And I don't want to criticize my colleagues and not knowing all, but you can see those would be examples where you could optimize the billings, right? Around virtual care, Uh, similar to, you know, methadone. I always pick on those guys, but physician services, huge million dollars, right? For providing methadone, it's a needed service. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. But if I'm a patient with COPD or diabetes, and I come and I get my methadone and I wanna talk about my chest, my cough, Oh, Sorry, not my problem. You gotta go see. Well, I don't have primary care. You're mm-hmm. in, right? So that million plus dollars, and if you look at the data, it's, it's, I know they even dropped the fees, right? To try and kind of throttle down some of this utilization. The danger is will virtual care be used that way? Is there potential really to optimize billings and it becomes a ka for the docs, but not providing a value or service. Uh, and that gets into the whole arguments around reimbursement, right? And uh, individual uh, services versus thinking as a collaborative uh, and where you in public health are looking at a whole region. You, you've got the sky view. You know where we're hemorrhaging, right? And where services are being utilized. Uh, and now, how do you engage with primary care or hospitals or providers in the community to do a better job to focus in on that. And, and so thinking along that lines, that's really where I think virtual care has to aim, I think, right. and I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, and, and But I think that's hopefully where we'll go.
1: You've just heard part one of Gordon and LaShawn's conversation with Dr. Keith Thompson, Chief Medical Officer of IATALA Med Canada, about what telehealth is, the various ways in which it can be delivered to serve patients, and how the pandemic has influenced the availability and uptake of telemedicine services. Join us in the next episode as Dr. Thompson shares his thoughts on the digital determinants of health and how telehealth can be leveraged to reach marginalized and isolated populations. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.